0: we are black with another episode of what we need now
1: for our season finale you'll be hearing from some of us who work behind the scenes on season three
2: we will share some of our perspective and experiences as black folks working in the environmental movement and it's going to be juicy okay. what we need now a podcast where we invite the people doing the work to do the talking.
3: Hey everyone, my name is Avery Sinclair-Rains. I use she and her pronouns and I'm based in Baltimore, Maryland on Piscataway land. I am the senior digital strategist for the climate campaign at Greenpeace USA, which Basically, if I had to sum it up, is like doing digital marketing, but instead of selling a product or a service, we're selling advocacy. We're selling campaign ideas.
1: Hi everyone, my name is Tamira Adams. I use she/her pronouns. I am based in Muskogee Land in Evans, Georgia. Now, I've just recently moved. Um, my job title is I'm a grants coordinator for institutional partnerships. And I basically organize the money that comes in for our department. For the people who get the money, I organize it. Hey, everyone. I'm Shante, she, her, hers. I'm in Raleigh,
4: North Carolina, land. Um I'm the social media strategist for Greenpeace. Um, and I pretty much manage our social media platforms and help drive our digital strategy and tactics to engage audiences across our platforms.
2: Hi everyone, my name is Tanya Brooks. I use she, her, hers pronouns. I am on Manawilka land, otherwise known as Fairfax, Virginia. I'm the senior strategic communications specialist with the Greenpeace Oceans and Plastics campaigns, which basically means that I help to get the word out about all of the wonderful stuff that Greenpeace is doing.
0: I'm, I'm Rico, he, him, his pronouns. I'm on Ohlone land in Oakland, California. I'm an activist training and development officer. Um, and like the layman's terms for what I do is train people who want to take risks, teach them how to take those risks safely and strategically. That's, that's basically what I do. Um, so climbing, you know, boats, fun stuff like that. Um, and so we got a good mix. We got people like who've been in the environmental movement for a long time. We got folks who just moved into this space more recently from other kinds of advocacy. We got development. We got communications. We have online digital strategy actions. Um, And so I'm excited to hear all these perspectives. We also have Shantae, who's in her last week at Greenpeace. So that is a very specific perspective. We're glad that we got to record this before you leave. Um, So I just want to hear from everybody, like, what is your environmental origin story? You know, like, if this is the first movie in the Marvel series of your work in Greenpeace, (laughs) tell me that story.
3: So yeah, this is Avery again, and I had an interesting journey to the environmental movement. I was a radio DJ during college in Louisiana, and I was giving away tickets for Jazz Fest, which I highly recommend if you get the chance to go, please check it out. Um, but Jazz Fest is, has been sponsored by Shell for quite a while now, and every time that we would have to give away the tickets, we would have to say Jazz Fest, sponsored by Shell. And we got a lot of angry calls from a lot of people living in coastal Louisiana, a lot of fishermen, a lot of shrimpers. And keep in mind, this was 2013, so maybe 2012, so right after the BP oil spill. So we got a lot of calls from folks living in coastal Louisiana who were pretty upset and angry about oil and gas sponsorship of Jazz Fest. And I knew nothing about this, so I started attending some community meetings down in Plaqueteen's Parish, and that sort of brought me on this journey of environmental justice organizing. And eventually, I headed to D.C. and ended up in the NGO world and ended up here at Greenpeace.
1: This is Tamira again. Uh, I actually majored in psychology in college, and I did not want to do research, and I didn't want to counsel. (laughs) So what do you do with a psychology degree when you don't want to do either of those things? Uh, And so my senior year, I took a capstone project, which is like your final project, and we helped an environmental nonprofit organization rescale, like reorganize. We went through all of their files. And so that was extremely interesting to me. So that's how I got into the nonprofit world. I bounced around for a while working in every type of traumatic (laughs) background that you can imagine. I worked with foster care. I worked with survivors of human trafficking and I ended up at Greenpeace. So I was really interested in their mission and just kind of like the values of the organization. So
4: I um I moved out to Colorado in twenty geez, what year was this? Twenty thirteen and totally different engagement when it came to like environmental issues. So I was like outdoors a lot, ended up connecting with a lot of environmental groups on the ground. Ended up connecting with the NWCP State Conference and taking on the climate justice chair position for mm-hmm. Montana, Colorado and Wyoming. Um, and my sole focus was to find an intersection of environmental issues and social justice. And my first big convening for NAACP State Conference, that sparked a collab with the Sierra Club. And we ended up doing these things called healing hikes, where it was encouraged to talk about social justice issues, encouraging more BIPOC communities to get outdoors. And that series really sparked me to want to get more engaged um, in the environmental movement. And the opportunity came for Greenpeace. And I was like, I want to take that away.
2: Yeah, I was trying to think while everyone else was talking. I'm not sure I have a point of origin, but... um Yeah, I studied geography in high school. It was like one of my favorite subjects. And I also started out at university and I did that in my first year. But then I switched to like international relations and went on the path of doing some diplomatic work. And I think overall, the thing that has brought me to the environmental movement is just the connection between the environment and justice issues. Because overall I think my goal of my career is to my <laughs> sound really corny is just to try to make the world a better place. And I think the environment and the connection to the justice issues is a great place to start doing that.
0: That does not sound corny to me at all. That's dope. We we talked a lot on the podcast about this like long history of Black and brown people working to protect the environment and the very obvious, very clear links between systemic racism and climate change. Greenpeace has put out reports about this as well. And despite that, we've also talked about how the broader environmental movement is not inclusive of black folks and brown folks, right? And so I wanna ask y'all do you feel like, from your position, from your experience, do you feel like you have a seat at the table? And what does that mean to you?
2: Yeah, I think um, things have been changing a lot. And increasingly, our voices are now being heard in spaces where they weren't usually. I know we have deep roots in the environmental movement that weren't always acknowledged. So it's good to see the transition where that is now coming to the forefront and working at a legacy organization like Queen Peace with someone like our co-ED, um, Ebony, at the helm, really says to me that our voices are now becoming more and more a vital part of the conversation so yeah seeing persons like ebony and tefari from greenpeace being involved in those conversations says to me that we are we are a part of it
3: i would agree that it seems like the times are changing um, however where i am at is that it's one thing to have a seat at the table. It's another thing to have a hand in planning the dinner party, right? To like help with crafting the menu to make, be able to actually make decisions around the meal, the metaphorical meal that everybody is going to sit down and enjoy. I have seen in my years in the environmental and climate movement, more and more black folks entering positions of leadership. However, I have, not actually seen a shift towards crafting solutions that are rooted in the knowledge of Black communities and communities of color, particularly Indigenous and Native communities as well. I've, I think it's great that there are so many Black folks in leadership. You know, I think what the EPA is doing with their new Office of Environmental Justice is amazing as well. However, I'm, there's still a gap. Between our presence at the table and actually coming up with community based solutions that will truly help our people. Sometimes to me, it can feel a little bit like we are checking diversity boxes, you know, Mm -hmm. like, oh, there's X amount of Black folks on this task force or in leadership. But until I really start to see solutions that embody the knowledge that our communities hold. Being actualized on a larger level, I won't actually feel like we have a true seat at the table.
0: I definitely feel that, and I, I guess I don't know much about like the development of the newer environmental justice program at the EPA. Like, how different is it from the one that they got rid of when Trump came in? Is it similar? I think it's larger. larger. I'm not,
3: I don't know all the details about it, but my understanding is that it's much, much larger, like dozens of jobs, which is exciting, which is really great. And we need more of this. Absolutely. But again, our communities hold a lot of knowledge and I'm, I'm a big believer in uplifting indigenous stewardship. And I also think that, you know, black folks have a lot of indigenous knowledge as well in terms of across this diaspora, particularly I'm thinking of in the Caribbean right now. And I don't see that knowledge being applied to solutions that are coming forth.
0: I'm hearing kind of like the, do we have the seat at the table as like black people? But I'm also curious, like, do you feel like you have one?
2: Yeah, on the two points you just raised, Rico, in terms of you, you asked, do you feel like you have a seat at the table? And as one in it, we are talking about, you personally or you collectively, because just thinking back on what Avery said and the way that the global South has been treated recently, there's been a lot of discussion with the queen passing about colonialism and reparations. Mm. And of course it's connection to the environmental movement. We know that things like 1.5 to stay alive started, I think in the global South and issues like that. And, to see that some of the issues that we are dealing with are not being adequately addressed, they're not getting proper attention, there's no talk about compensation, there's no talk about reparations, there's no talk about financing to help us deal with the issues that we basically didn't have a hand in creating, but we are dealing with the impacts of makes me wonder, as she said, do we have a hand in planning the menu or what is coming out of these discussions? So even though for the sake of inclusion, we may be at the table, are we really steering and driving the conversation? On a personal level, I think as a communication specialist, there's a lot of latitude for me speaking through other persons in the organization to be able to raise some of these points and um I have counted myself lucky to be able to do that. I think it's good when we put out a statement and we're able to include the racial justice angle on it to shed a spotlight that may not actually otherwise be there. And given the platform that Greenpeace has, that's a good thing that we're able to speak out so strongly.
0: Tamara, from your your perspective, you're dealing with the money, dollars are coming in. Do you feel like there's there's room for you to have a hand in the direction that we go and how things move within the org?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think that it has been a more recent addition of us to have a seat at the table when it comes to the money, because I tend to not see a lot of representation on the administrative fronts of nonprofit organizations I think a lot of times there's a lot of black and brown people, you know, on the front lines or in, you know, actions and different things. And then you look at the administrative just like makeup and it's lacking at times. And so I do think that as more recently, I'm seeing more black people have seats at the table. I do feel like I currently have a seat at the table in my position and just being able to, gain the experience and learn more about the money and learn more about the administration part of it. Uh, But I definitely think that it is more needed. I want to see it be more equal.
4: You know, something really popped into my head. There was a couple of weeks ago at a conference where I believe there was someone who asked leaders of organizations whether or not they thought that some countries had a disproportionate burden of climate impacts and everyone raised their hand. And then when the question was about like reparations or like accountability, no one wanted to actually take action. And I feel like that's kind of where we are. We're as a country and maybe even the world, I just just feel like Because so many issues are intersectional, they are really being seen on a large scale, whether it's like climate impacts or it is like a racial injustice happening, you cannot get away from it because it's in your face. And when it comes to like climate impacts and issues, I think BIPOC communities are being asked to be at these tables. But I think because there's been a historical not having BIPOC at the tables, a lot of organizations are either over asking, not knowing how to ask. And it, it can be a little exhausted at times. And I think that personally, I feel like I have a seat at the table in terms of like my current position, really engaging different audiences and understanding where they are on this journey to find those intersections, especially different identities and how they get impacted across like the climate movement. You really get to see that people sometimes cannot make the connection and that can be equally as exhausting. And so it's like two steps forward to be in this position to have conversations with folks. But then as you have these conversations with folks, you're realizing that people are are all over the spectrum and then you kind of have to start over just a little bit to really engage how best you want to get them to where they need to be to understand and really move up kind of like that ladder to hold people accountable and actually have some change
0: next up we're going to be talking about burnout and how to prevent it but first a word from our sponsors
1: this episode of What We Need Now brought to you in part by Boundaries, the fragrance that gives you your space.
0: Light, love, peace, rest. Boundaries. We wear fragrances to entice and attract, but what about when you want to repel? Boundaries. What about when you need your space? Get back, get back, go no, along like that. Managers in your DM? Boundaries. Phone calls at 3 a.m. Boundaries unsolicited advice. Boundaries. Stop by the office on your wedding day.
4: What? Your... Oh, oh my! What the... oh, that
0: that we okay. have smells that say, "Come hither." Boundaries says, "No, thank you. I'm good." Boundaries is a lifestyle, like bear spray, but for people, Boundaries. like garlic, for energy vampires. Boundaries. Wear it in the office, the grocery aisle, or anywhere people exist. Boundaries, the spray that tells them stay away.
1: Boundaries may cause quiet self reflection, feelings of confidence, healing, rest, and recognition. If these symptoms persist, do not consult your doctor. Enjoy.
4: So in nonprofit work and in movement spaces, we spend a lot of time advocating on behalf of our organization and campaigns or with folks on the front lines. But sometimes it can be much harder to advocate for ourselves. And so I would like just to know from all of you, what are your non-negotiables and how do you advocate for yourself?
1: working a lot in nonprofit space especially my background is in smaller nonprofits so you do everything that is that's the code you do everything because everybody does everything and so i've had to learn my limitations and and things that are outside of the scope of my job description. <laughs> and while it sounds, you know, cliche to say, like, I am going to act my salary. I'm going to act my job description. You know, and it's hard when you have a small team and everybody's going for this amazing goal, this amazing cause, and everybody's like, we want you to be riled up. But also you're taking the brunt of all of the the work, and you're feeling a lot of that. So, um, my non-negotiables are definitely things that are outside the scope of my job, unless I choose to do so. And then, just you know, managers or fellow coworkers that are just not respectful of my time. And when I set those limitations and boundaries to say that I'm I have too much on my plate.
4: Similarly, I it took me a minute to get where I am at. And it actually took like a mind shift because I was, you know, started in the movement, nonprofit, limited resources, but was doing everything I possibly could, wasn't sleeping. And I thought that's what movement work meant. It meant that you do everything possible. You tire yourself out to show that you are committed and you're going to do it. And it actually took me going to a conference where I was in a group with this uh, other Black woman and she was asking what I was doing for self-care. And I was like, I got to do the movement. And she was like, listen, this movement is only as strong as you know the person who needs us the most. And if you're not 100% yourself, then a the movement can not advance. And As my career progressed, I started looking at how I'm going to invest in myself and how am I going to sustain myself and whether I can give myself a hundred percent to this work without overdoing it, but also allow other people to step into their roles. And so that's how I had to look at it. And as well as like advocating in the sense of like, if it doesn't work, it doesn't work and that's okay.
0: I think, um, just to be very transparent, I'm horrible at this. Like, I'm like... It is, it is such a, uh, such a struggle to, to say no to things, particularly in my role where a lot of the work is things that I would love to do that I've like volunteered to do some of these things in the past before it was my job. It is sometimes difficult to like draw boundaries and be like, actually my plate is full. I, there are no more plates. I cannot put more on this plate. It's a, it's a difficult thing to do. It's something that I've definitely over the past couple of years, like worked really hard to, to be better at. But I think like my non-negotiables, the things that have been kind of consistent, I think are primarily around relationships. So like, because so much of the work I do is with people, people that I like develop relationships with, I've tried to be really consistent with how I'm like in relationship with people, being in right relationships. So if things change, if priorities change, if something shifts, or if there's like, if there's a reason that I, you know, that the dynamic must shift from a, from a work standpoint, I'm just making sure that I'm doing right by that individual from a like human to human standpoint. And that sounds simple, but it is not always. And so that is something that I've really tried to be a little bit more rigid on. And then also just like relationships in my life. So as as everybody on this call knows, I'm expecting a baby. And so I'm like starting to add more to my list of non-negotiables uh, just to make sure that I've created the space for the type of parent that I want to be and partner to my wife. So,
2: I think I have a lot in common with everyone that has spoken before me. Where I'm from, we have a saying that you're given a basket to carry water. And I've definitely been in a lot of organizations where they've asked a lot of you and not given you the resources to do what you need. So being the wonderful, committed employee that I have been, <laughs> I'm always going above and beyond uh, just to make sure that the work is done. And it's kind of hard because once you're passionate about it and you really want to get that done, then you will do that. So like everyone else here, I think it has been a process of learning exactly what my limits are, what my non-negotiables are. And like Rico said, I'm also pretty horrible at that. But I think just the time that I spent Especially in the last master's in strategic communications program that I was doing, and just learning a bit more about management and those processes, and spending time in the pandemic, as I guess a lot of people did, reflecting, I've kind of come up with not really a list because it's still a work in progress, but some things that I think are like important to have in the workplace, and that would include respect from the people who I work with and respect from the people who manage me, being treated as a person and not just as a number. Uh, Flexibility, I think, is really important because I am a parent and a human being first. And I think it's important that employees recognize that for their employees. And, of course, compensation. I think people should be adequate to compensate for their work. So, Getting a fair and appropriate wage for my qualifications and for what I bring to the table, I think, should also be a non negotiable for me. There's more, but it's a work in progress. So, my
3: list of non negotiables in terms of boundaries and self care has grown throughout my years in nonprofits. I think it's probably the longest it's ever been right now, particularly because I am a student. So, Even though I'm not getting paid to be in school, it feels like I'm working two full-time jobs right now. So some of those boundaries are, you know, you pay me for 40 hours a week of work, you're getting 40 hours a week of work, I'm off the clock at the end of my workday. There are very few exceptions nowadays where I will work late into the evenings or even on the weekends because I think that our personal time is precious and we should be able to exercise it and do with it whatever we want. So there's that. I think another boundary is also recognizing that, you know, a lot of times in movement work, we find a lot of similarities with our colleagues because we all have passions that deeply align. And because of that, I think it can be really difficult sometimes to maintain personal, professional boundaries Meaning that there's oftentimes in movement work and nonprofits, lots of oversharing, a lot of emotional labor that, you know, that occurs, that goes uncompensated. Mm. And in the end, that kind of stuff can really lead to burnout in all honesty. So a boundary that I've put in place for myself recently is just, you know, reminding myself that it's okay, that my colleagues are colleagues and that I consider many of them are work friends and that I, you know, can, I'm entitled to lead a personal life outside of this work and that does not prevent me from bringing my full self into this work. This is a hard lesson for me to learn.
0: Avery, <laughs> do you have any master classes that you teach or talks <laughs> I can watch? <laughs> That's hard. Everything you just said is hard.
3: Yeah, I wish. I I find myself listening to a lot of self-help podcasts <laughs> these days. So, shout out to my girl Renee Brown. <laughs> shout out to Eonla I- 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 even though, you know, she could be problematic at times too.
4: It's crazy because sometimes it feels like setting boundaries can be exhausting too. Because if you're not consistent with them, you end up like going back and forth.
3: The reactions to you setting boundaries can be a little interesting Mm -hmm. sometimes. You know, sometimes people might find it a little bit offensive, especially in this line of work. You know, I think there's a lot of a mindset of you're passionate about these issues, you're passionate about this cause, so give yourself over to it entirely. And when you make it clear that you're, you refuse to do so because whether or not to protect your personhood or just, you know, to protect your energy, it sometimes can be met with a sort of like, oh, well, how dedicated are you really? And so making sure to stay rooted in your beliefs and rooted in your boundaries and recognizing that you are still just as dedicated to this work as anybody else working on it, but you're entitled to do what you need to do for your self-care and to protect yourself is, it can be a difficult thing to try and enforce.
4: I don't know why, but what you just said really just gave me like a goosebumps in terms of like who defines what self care is and like measures you up against it. And like, where did that come from? Of like, why mm-hmm. have we operated in a movement where if you aren't working days and nights and giving yourself, then that's not seen as committed. It's unfortunate because it seems like it's really rooted in like kind of a white supremacist mindset of like, you have to do everything you can possible. You need to stay up late to do this. You need to get it done. And that's also just American culture in general, right? Yeah. Work yourself to the bone and you should be proud of that.
2: And just noting that I think basically all of us have kind of admitted having a struggle with setting boundaries and really just wondering where... Does this come from recognizing, of course, that culture is not a monolith and we're not all the same, but what are the factors that are driving this that all of us so far seem to have have a challenge <laughs> with doing that?
0: I think one of the factors is that like the idea of self-care is a little bit of a It's a little bit like respectability politics for taking care of yourself, where it kind of like puts the onus on the individual, like you just have individual boundaries and you just advocate for yourself. When in reality, I think that like, the way that we create a culture is a way that people can care for themselves. What I mean by that is like, if all of y'all work super early and super late, and then I get to work on time, it'll feel like I'm late. And it'll feel like I leave early, right? And so like, I think that it's like the culture that we create. If, if the fact that other people are like overworking or sacrificing themselves is held up as like, this is the standard, then it's really hard to be somebody who goes against that. I think that's part of it. But then I also think, obviously, like, as Black folks working in whether you say predominantly white, whether you say it's multicultural, you know, I haven't looked at the most recent spreadsheets to say exactly where we fall, but like we're somewhere in that line. Um, there is like certain mentalities of scarcity, certain mentalities of like, if you're not above and beyond, then you're below the standard. And I think some of that also comes from like, we know that we're doing work that impacts our communities more. We know we're doing work that like folks like ours aren't represented. And so it feels like, It's not just like letting down the job, but if you're not showing up and pushing forward things like this podcast or some of the work that we do, that it might not happen at all and it needs to happen, you know?
2: Yeah, I like how you separated out the culture, Rico, recognizing that, you know, there's the organizational culture and then there's, I guess, elements of the wider culture that we're all a part of um, coming from Black communities, and how we navigate and fit into predominantly white spaces the respectability politics of that you know and again it goes back to the whole issue of setting boundaries bringing your whole self to work like who are we really and what are we allowed to do or what do we feel free and welcome to do in the organizations that we're a part of
1: So in keeping with that same theme, we know that burnout and being overwhelmed is so common in the nonprofit sector, especially for the BIPOC communities. It is critical that we take time for ourselves and engage in activities and outlets that allow us rest. So when was the last time you experienced serenity, true peace, and what were you doing?
3: Oh, I can answer this one easily. Um, I was Temporarily unemployed. I was between jobs. I find every time that I don't have a job, <laughs> <laughs> I am truly at peace. Um, I think I was in Trinidad, just soaking up the sun, eating great food, lyman with the boys and the friends, you know, just having a good time. Um, yeah. So, but in terms of when I am employed, I think the times where I find myself to truly be at peace is usually when I'm around my family. I will say those moments are like fleeting and far between because like any families, my family can be can be a lot, but just being around my family, whether it's my my biological family or my chosen family and my friends really enables me to just fully relax and sort of forget about all of the worries of the world and all of my responsibilities.
4: I've been making a, more of an effort just to get out and go hiking more, especially now where I'm at. I'm near a hiking trail. And so I'm forcing myself just to go out and with limited connectivity. So I'm just focused on making sure I stay on the right path. Now that I talk about it, I feel like that's literally the right path, but also making sure I'm just in my thoughts and just getting that clarity and thinking through where I need to get to and just Letting go, I think that I've really appreciated more having that downtime and not being online as much to really just free my mind up, and also traveling as well. Um, got back from being in Latin America for a little bit, and so I had to focus on, you know, speaking in another language and making sure I wasn't offending someone. And I, I take that experience over just being just outwardly stressed but there was just peace in knowing that I'm learning new things but able to escape the what can be a little bit of chaos in my work and it teaches you a lot about yourself
2: yeah the last time I think I experienced something close to serenity was being back home in Jamaica we had gone to a, a restaurant totally unplanned and just found a seaside cliff and beautiful alcove with just the nicest water, you know, and just finding that little space to enjoy with my family was a moment of serenity. And again, on my last visit to Jamaica, just being able to to vibe (laughs) with all of the things, the food, the People, the culture, the language, (laughs) the beaches, which are always fabulous, was yeah, that felt like serenity to me. Just happy to get away from it all and experience that.
1: I totally agree. I think mentally, I'm still in the islands at all times. (laughs) I took a trip to Antigua for our honeymoon and it was fantastic. There's nothing that beats the clear blue water and like sitting out in a hammock. It's just, it's superior, actually.
2: Yeah. Um, the beach is always my happy space too.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Mine too. So uh, we've talked about rest. I think a lot of you mentioned places and, you know, things that you do, but are, are there any specific activities that you do that really help to rest or unwind or just to disconnect for a minute?
3: Yes. The answer is Nothing. And by that, I mean, sometimes I just have to plan a day where I plan to do absolutely nothing. And I just see where the day takes me. I find a lot of times in our grown up lives, we constantly have tasks and responsibilities to take care of. There's always that errand that you have to run. Oh, you have to do that load of laundry. Some days I just like to wake up with the intention of not having to do anything. And then I'm pl- always pleasantly surprised by what I end up getting into, you know, but feeling like I have that autonomy to really choose whatever it is that I'm, I'm getting up to that day. Um, Nine times out of 10, it involves taking a bath at some point. Yes, definitely.
1: Definitely that. I love baths. I am an avid uh, yogi now. (laughs) I do yoga um, at least twice a week. I actually put it on my work calendar. So that is like an hour out of my day. Nobody bothered me. I'm at yoga class. (laughs) Um, And it is really just, it's really great to unwind. And um, it's actually yin yoga. So you spend an hour just laying around. And like you only do five positions the whole class, but it is just basically for you to go to sleep, and it is fantastic.
2: <laughs> that does sound fantastic. Like I want to learn yoga to just lie around, but yeah, like Avery said, I think I find it hard to just do nothing, and it's so important to find time to do nothing. Like there's just always something to do, and it's difficult for me to to get into that kind of space. But in terms of what I enjoy doing, like I like dancing and I want to get back into that, not professionally, but just for fun. (laughs) And um, also I'm looking forward to getting into gardening as soon as possible. I find it very calming and helpful to be tending plants and trying to grow stuff. And of course, yoga, like Tamara does. (laughs) Love that.
0: Yeah, I agree. It's very hard to not do things. When I'm like, I'm going to do nothing, there's still like 15 or 16 things that are varying degrees of doing nothing in my head. Um, and like the last tier right before actually doing nothing is reading, which is something I love to do. And if I'm really like, okay, I don't need to worry about these tasks, I'm going to read. Um, so I've been sh- reading more and, and definitely like doing audio books, because at least then I can if I don't have enough space and time for myself to read, I can like listen to an audiobook while I do some other thing that has to be done.
4: I have learned to put my phone on Do Not Disturb and just start doing puzzles. So now I'm upwards of like 500 pieces. First, when I get it, I'm like, what the hell did I get myself into? What like, <laughs> This is a lot. Um, but I've, I've just found it's just a way to like take a break when you need to come back to it, put things together. And I'm just focused on getting this done and, you know. I don't watch that much TV anyway, but I find, I find it
1: therapeutic. And one of my like main questions was like, how do you measure your life? How do you measure what's important to you? How do you measure what's non-negotiable? You know, how do you decide to take care of yourself? But also what does
2: burnout look like to you? How do I measure life? I think it's in phases, you know, like it's a process and, uh, I think I've kind of mentally removed myself from the rat race. So I'm not focused on the titles or on the position. I'm just focused on trying to do the things that make me happy, that makes my family happy and healthy. So that's how I'm measuring life. That's how I'm measuring my success at the moment, not how much money I'm making or any of that kind of stuff. Um, what does burnout look like to me? For me, mental and physical exhaustion. It's just the point at which you can't anymore. There have been a lot of talk about quiet quitting. And I don't know if I particularly like that term. But I realize that I have actually quite quit quite a few times before. So yeah, just getting to the point where you really can't do anymore. And again, setting boundaries about what you can do or will do.
0: I've heard that term too, but what is quiet quitting? Like, what is the idea?
2: I think the idea is like kind of what I said
1: earlier. Like you just do the job that you were paid to do. (laughs) You show up and you go home.
0: (laughs) How how is that quitting though? I'm like,
4: well, (laughs) well, that's that's the thing. Is it started out as somebody professional trying to call out people in the workplace is not doing enough, and they called it quiet quitting as people aren't putting in the effort. And then there's a counter movement saying, well, wait a minute, this is what we get paid to do, and why is that not okay? for us to actually mm. do our job. <laughs> and so it, it it's nice to see that there is like an understanding that it's okay to, not only is it okay, it's what you are literally supposed to do. So this stigma around quiet quitting and people trying to make it a negative thing is, is so unfortunate. Mm. It's what we should have been doing all along, I think, to preserve ourselves. To your question, you know, like, what does burnout look like? I'm, I'm learning that it is, when you've taken a break and come back tired. And I experienced that. I had a two weeks in Latin mm-hmm. America. I came back and I was like, I am tired. I'm still tired. <laughs> I can't do this.
1: Yeah, that is definitely real. I, um, in a previous organization, at one point, I came in at 9 a.m. And I did not leave until 9 p.m. and
0: Tamir just quietly quit this recording. I just want to like share with the listeners because they're not seeing what we're seeing that there is a visual metaphor happening in this conversation because the platform that we're using for whatever reason, people keep getting kicked out and then they have to join back in. And so literally like while we're talking about people being burnt out and retention, like people are mid-sentence and getting cut Mm -hmm. out and then coming back in, it's a really powerful uh, metaphor (laughs) that I, that I wish we could share with the audio, this podcast. Yeah,
3: absolutely. And, and, in previous time, I've known that I've been burned out at previous roles when I wake up with a sense of dread to log on to work for the day, you know, like just rolling out of bed, nothing's gone wrong. It's like the first 10, 15 minutes of my day and I already am not looking forward to spending my day doing whatever it is that I'm supposed to be doing for that job. That's, that's definitely how I know that I'm burned out for sure. Does that mean that I'm going to immediately take steps to remedy that burnout? Probably not. (laughs) I'm probably just going to be like pretty cranky until I'm like, wait a second, it's time to make a change. But um, I think it's I think once you're burnout, it's really intuitive. You know, it sort of infects like every single aspect of your life. And I know people talk a lot about the Sunday scaries, you know, that just sort of like pit in your stomach on Sunday when you're just like, oh, no, the weekend's coming to an end and I have to go back to work um well for me burnout was like less sunday scaries and more like sundays absolutely horrifying like oh no <laughs> like can i get a time machine to extend this weekend <laughs> because i really cannot go back
0: <laughs> yeah i feel like one one way burnout can show up and has shown up for me at, at times when i felt that is just like the deepest of cynicism because um, I, I think I am a pretty optimistic person naturally and have been. So when I when I feel myself getting like that, I'm like, I should probably take some vacation. I should probably drink some water, take a nap. Um, and in terms of measuring measuring your life, when I think about that, I think about like, what will I feel about what I'm doing now in 10 years, in 20 years, in 30 years? Because a lot of times it's not what I think. Like even when I look back on my life 10 years ago, some of the stuff that seemed the most important then is not the things that I like remember now or that I like emphasize or in, in one direction or the other, like challenges that I wish I could have done differently or things I'm really proud of are not necessarily the things I thought would be so. When I think about measuring my life, I'm, I try to like imagine, you know, 50, 60, 70 year old me looking back on this time and be like, what would what would I be proud of or what would I want to do differently?
2: So I have a question then. What would you each recommend that like your employees or any organization look at? Like, what's your top recommendation to them to prevent burnout?
1: Well, for me, it was very much if I say that I am tired, believe me. <laughs> you know, if, if if I if I say that I'm there's too much on my plate and, you know, I need to go away for a vacation, don't call me on the vacation. <laughs> you know, very much so. I think it is very important to have um, employers that are very aware of their employees, that they have emotional intelligence to understand that like this work is hard and I do not want to burn out my employees. So I'm going to check in on that. I'm going to, you know, and so I think that's what I look for in a supervisor and a manager and um, an employer as in a company is that they actually care about
0: their workers. I agree with everything Tamara said. I also think like some of it is around motivation, like um, in previous roles, like in a management role, one of the things that we always try to do is like figure out what is each person motivated by recognizing that it's not the same for everyone. Like people are not all here for the same reason. And so then trying to consider what is somebody motivated by and Adjusting accordingly if you see the signs that someone is like losing that spark or losing that motivation, rather than assuming it's a problem with them. Like taking a little bit on, like, okay, what can I do individually, or what can we do as a team or as a organization to like to to reach out to this person. And overall, like what Samira said, trust that person. Trust that person when they say they're tired. Trust that person when they say they're good too. Like, let it be. They don't necessarily need to prove to me that they're doing okay if they say they are. Um, so I think it's a balance.
2: Yeah, for me, I think, again, flexibility is important. Um, Again, we're all juggling a lot and recognizing, of course, that we're human beings first and Allowing us the space and the time to take care of some of those other aspects of our life is very important. I spoke earlier about resources. Um, I really think it's unfair when employers ask you to do things and they're not providing you with the proper resources. For me, that's a big source of burnout because then it's just like you don't have enough to do what you need to do. There's the mental aspect, there's a, physical aspect it takes you much longer it's not efficient all of that just makes you exhausted and Rika said something which I also think is important um, praise rewards and recognition I think we all might be a little bit shy to say yeah we like getting praised or we like getting recognition but I think mentally it really helps to know that the work that you're doing is valued, that it is recognized and that you're being appropriately rewarded or appropriately recognized for what you're contributing. Those all help mentally.
1: Yeah, I would even say like going into a new position or even if you're in a position, it's important to sit down with your supervisor and like come up with like almost like a care plan, like an action plan of like this is, this is how I respond when I am feeling burnt out or this is how I like to be motivated. This is how I like to, you know, I think that's really important to be able to have that open dialogue with whoever your supervisor is. Um, And even getting to know your, your fellow coworkers and things like that, because that can make workplace interactions even better. Um, I think that goes with a lot of relationships in general, just in life. it, It is really important to have that open communication and clearly like established, um, just identifiers so that, you know, people know how to navigate.
0: Does anybody have any final thoughts, any last little nuggets of wisdom that they want to share with our listeners?
1: Take care of yourself. Take time. Work will be there. (laughs) Um, spend time with your family, spend time with your friends, your chosen family. You won't always get that time back. So that's what I would have to say. Take care of yourselves.
4: Invest in yourself, invest in your future, invest in who you want to be, whether that be at your current employer or where you're going to be down the road, find and use the tools that you can and really take care
1: of yourself. I literally get affirmations sent to my phone and literally the one that just popped up said, unhealthy choices are my past. Mm. And I just feel like <laughs> that's a word. I'm like, snaps. <laughs> I think finding your
3: community I Wherever it is that you may be working is also really important. I personally feel very grateful for the Black Stash at Greenpeace. I feel grateful for my other colleague friends at Greenpeace as well. But um, finding a community that you can turn to when things get tough is always really nice. While maintaining those boundaries. It's a gentle balance.
2: (laughs) Yeah, for me, I think I would just advise people to try to find ways that they can align their passion and their purpose i think people are more happier they're more fulfilled whenever they bring those two into balance so whether it is in your professional life or in your personal life just try to find a way where you are doing the things that you love and the things that make you happy
0: So that concludes our episode, and with it, season three of What We Need Now. We want to thank our guests, who in this case were also our hosts, and our writers and producers. We end every episode with an ask, something that we want you to do, and this month, the ask is for you to find some time, at your earliest convenience, to do nothing. Just don't do anything for a little while. See how that feels. And if you want to learn more about the power of rest follow Trisha Hertzey at the Nat ministry on Instagram and check out her new book, Rest is Resistance. We want to thank you for listening. And if you enjoyed this episode or any of this season, why don't you share with a close friend or colleague? And as always, please subscribe and leave a review wherever you listen to your podcasts. That's all for this season, but we'll see you next time on
1: What We Need Now.